This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, April 11th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, short-term rental tax raises funds for housing, housing's on the docket at the state legislature, snowpack just below normal at peak accumulation, and a mountain weather forecast. Over the weekend, the Colorado Broadcasters Association recognized KOTO News for its excellence in news programming, with an award for Best News Feature. Today, we're rerunning the award-winning piece. This story was originally broadcast in July 2021. In 2019, three Telluride locals identified what they saw as a problem. Pepper Raper Contillo was one of them. We see our town is just bleeding people and wonderful people that are volunteers and great workers and wonderful community members, um, and people can't find housing. The Trust for Community Housing, a local housing nonprofit, estimates there are currently fewer than five housing units on the market for rent. And affordable housing projects in the area currently each have wait lists of over 100 people. So, Raper Cantillo and her friends decided to put democracy in action and do something about it. We decided, hey, let's tax the problem and turn the problem into a solution. That solution was a citizen's initiative ballot measure. The citizen's ballot initiative we did was to put an excise tax on short-term rentals within the town of Telluride. We proposed a 2.5% excise tax, and that money was specifically earmarked for the affordable housing budget of town. The measure was aimed at short-term private rentals, like Airbnb or VRBO, and excluded hotels and commercial accommodations. The short-term rentals, Raper Cantillo says, is contributing to local residents losing their long-term housing. Roughly 35% of Telluride's housing stock is currently short-term rentals. That's up from about 20% five years ago. That fall, the measure passed with 56% of the vote. The tax went into effect in January 2020. In the first year, Telluride collected over $400,000 in tax revenue. In 2021, Telluride Mayor Delaney Young anticipates the town will collect $800,000. She says that funding will help float a number of construction projects coming down the pipeline. The town of Telluride is currently building a 30-unit rental project and are planning to break ground on two other housing projects within the next year, adding another 30 to 50 units of housing. You can never really have enough dedicated funding sources for something that is at this level of crisis. We just need to keep our eye on the goal, which is to get as many units built as quickly as we can. And for Raper Cantillo, housing efforts related to the tax are essential to keeping the community sound. For one, she says the lack of affordable housing discourages people from starting new businesses in Telluride. They don't want to commit to anything because they don't know at what point they may get kicked out of their housing and have to move town. Mayor Young adds housing is more than just a roof over your head. It has to do with your mental health. It has to do with economic health for the region. Housing is if you will, the hub of the wheel and all of the spokes that come off are related to what that stable housing can provide to the entire community for not only the employees who live in it, but the businesses where they work, the schools that their children attend, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the idea for a short-term rental tax didn't appear out of thin air. Other mountain towns, including Crested Butte, provided a roadmap for what the tax could look like in Telluride. 
Voters there passed a tax on short-term rentals that took effect in 2018. Having a defined revenue stream that's been pretty consistent these past few years is a great benefit for the community and for the Affordable Housing Fund. It certainly gives us the stability to do things um, that we couldn't necessarily plan on being able to do in years prior. Dara McDonald, town manager for the town of Crested Butte. She notes the town collects about $400,000 a year from the tax, which goes back into the town's affordable housing fund. It certainly has not impeded rentals. We just continue to see growth in the revenue um, numbers that we're receiving. But McDonald and Raper Cantillo recognize the tax is just one element. It's not enough. Um, we still, like like Telluride, have a huge uphill battle to be able to secure sufficient housing for our local workforce. This is one small puzzle piece of many actions we can take. And, you know, some say 2.5% wasn't enough to make it worth it, so we shouldn't have done it at all. But if you look at it, at the end of the day, it's raising funds that were not there before. And now more locals are stepping in again. A new citizens initiative to cap the number of short-term rentals in Telluride is working its way to the ballot this fall. Since this story aired, the Citizens Initiative to cap the number of short-term rentals in Telluride went to voters. The measure failed at the ballot box. With one month left of the legislative session, Colorado's General Assembly is going full tilt. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Scott Franz brings the latest. Hey, Scott. Thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. So we are about a month away from the end of the session for the legislature. So I wanted to just check in and see what does the Capitol building feel like? How does it seem like uh, lawmakers are, are feeling about getting relatively close to the finish line? Yeah, I can't believe it's it's here already. It always goes quite, uh, quite quickly. Um, I will say, you know, there's there's tons of energy still. Here at the Capitol, I mean, every day, it just feels like it's getting busier and busier. Um, they should wrap up the budget relatively soon. And then we'll kind of see some of the the, the bigger um, political battles play out. I'm talking about, you know, some of these bills we see late in the session, you know, when lawmakers sense the clock is running out. You know, that's typically when we have some of the more um, spirited debates over policy. You know, right now we have Bill still on, you know, trying to tackle air pollution. There's still hundreds of millions of dollars of this coronavirus relief money that's that's kind of nearing the finish line. Um, and you know, perhaps some surprise priorities that that we see. I'm thinking back to uh, you know recent sessions when you know with with just days days left, we saw big things on you know regulating um, tobacco products. Um, so we're kind of um, you know, in the more exciting part of the session when, you know, every day, um, you know, a significant bill or policy either passes and heads to the governor or we see kind of a, a new policy get introduced. One of the bills that lawmakers are talking about, which I know our listeners will definitely care about, is one that's looking at housing. Um, can you share a little bit about what this bill is? Right. So th- this comes from this task force that, you know, met for many months last summer, and one of the top recommendations was to create a uh, revolving loan fund. Now, the idea here is to create a fund um, 
you know, of over a hundred million dollars that would go out to um, developers and, and other um, people who can build uh, workforce housing now. Um, the debate over this bill has, interestingly, uh, has become, you know, who who this housing should serve. Um, you know, initially there there were calls to kind of, um, you know, ensure this was only for you know the the lowest income residents. Um, and but there's concern, especially from resort communities, mountain communities, that you know the way the bill was initially proposed that it wouldn't reach the the people that they were hoping to to build units for people like um you know police officers firefighters you know transit bus rides some of those might have even been missed in in mountain communities because of the the higher cost of living so this you know they did adjust it to raise that income cap for the people um you know who would be served which was welcome news for especially you know some mountain communities with higher cost of living, but it's still got several steps to go before it you know passes through the legislature. Yeah, and so so this the funding wouldn't give money to buyers or renters. It would rather help subsidize the costs of building, so then they can be in turn sold at a lower price point. That that's correct. Yes, this this bill specifically you know, it would be targeted toward developers of, of housing projects to help them, you know, have more of a financial incentive to be able to borrow money to get their projects off the ground. Um, you know, there is a separate bill that we're expecting that is more grants to individual communities. So if, you know, cities and towns were, um, you know, wanting a, a specific project or had shown some, you know, investment to get a project off the ground, you know, that would also be um, in play, but yeah, these the ones we've seen yet aren't direct assistance to um, residents, but rather trying to get the just the stock of housing up. You mentioned earlier that folks maybe can um, expect some hot button issues coming before um, the legislature in in the final month. We also know that we're coming up on an election year and that can impact the way that lawmakers choose to address or go about things. Um, What are you seeing or are you seeing anything related to lawmakers gearing up for for the elections coming up this fall? You know, it's it's sometimes hard to distinguish between, you know, campaign season and, you know, things that are happening at the Capitol that, you know, would have likely happened regardless of an election year. But, um, you know, we just had the, the state assemblies over the weekend. And I'd, I'd say, you know, election security, for example, is an issue that, you know, definitely seems to be influenced by, um, you know, the upcoming um, campaign, you know, with Democrats sponsoring legislation that that aims to address, you know, the the alleged security breach we saw in, um, you know, Mesa County and um, Republicans sponsoring bills that, you know, aim to switch voting machines and and things like that. So I'd say, you know, that topic has definitely surfaced as one being heavily influenced by this campaign season and, um, you know, several bills surrounding that issue. But, you know, we, we still have a couple weeks left and that would be kind of the last opportunity heading into the you know, what is going to be a very busy um, election summer, you know, going all the way to November, um, you know, we might see some more things pop up. 
Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was KOTO Scott Franz reporting from Denver. Spring is here, and before you know it, snowpack on mountains will turn to stream flows in valleys. April is the month where Colorado typically reaches peak snowpack accumulation. That's according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture Natural Resources Conservation Service. And currently, Colorado's snowpack is just below normal. At the beginning of April, all basins in the state but one were at more than 90% of the median. The Yampa White Little Snake Basin is on the low end, with snowpack at 84% of the median. The Upper Rio Grande is at the highest end, with 101% of median. The combined San Miguel, Dolores, Enemas, and San Juan Basin is at 92% of median snowpack. With that said, snowpack doesn't inherently result in stream flow. The NRCS says streamflow forecasts are far below normal across Colorado, although higher than the past two years. Gunnison and North Platte basins see the highest forecast with 95% of normal. The combined San Miguel, Dolores, Enemas, and San Juan basin has the lowest projected streamflow at just 74% of normal. Avian flu has wiped out the backyard flock of chickens in Pitkin County. The USDA on Friday confirmed H5N1 in a sample from the flock, which had been exposed to sick waterfowl. This is the first discovery of the highly pathogenic avian influenza virus, or HPAI, in domestic birds in Colorado. The state veterinarian office is urging those with backyard flocks to immediately enhance biosecurity efforts, such as decreasing interactions between wild and domestic birds, and preventing wild birds from accessing feed. HPAI is known to decimate flocks within 48 hours. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there is currently no danger to humans. Colorado's Republican Party is all in on the, quote, big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KDNK's Morgan Neely has more. The state GOP held its assembly in Colorado Springs over the weekend and chose two high-profile conspiracy theorists to run for office. Tina Peters, under indictment for allegedly tampering with the very voting machines she was supposed to keep secure as Mesa County Clerk, was chosen to run for Secretary of State. She'll be on the Republican primary ballot in late June. Delegates chose State Representative Ron Hanks to run for the party's U.S. Senate nomination in the primary. If victorious in June, he'd face Democrat Michael Bennett in the midterms. Hanks attended the January 6th rally in D.C. that turned into an insurrection. He later blamed the Capitol riot on Antifa, a claim that is not supported by evidence. Two-thirds of Republicans in the Colorado House earlier this year voted to formally thank him for attending the rally. Republicans even turned on each other at the assembly. After Danielle Neuschwanger was passed over by delegates in favor of Greg Lopez as the party's pick to run for governor, she confronted state GOP chair Christy Burton-Brown. So you know what? I'm going to see you in court, and I'm going to make sure if you committed any fraud that you are behind bars. Neuschwanger has been arrested three times, including for drunk driving, and is subject to a permanent restraining order from an ex-boyfriend. She has also made outlandish claims that Governor Jared Polis isn't actually gay and that his marriage is a sham. 
a man next to Neuschwanger threatened physical violence against a state GOP official during the encounter. Don't stick your hand in front of my face, I'll throw your For KDNK News, I'm Morgan Neely. In 2018, a murder shocked a small Navajo community just south of Bluff, Utah. Federal agents arrested a suspect later that year, but since then, the victim's family has lived without closure and in fear. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom reports from Mexican Water on the Navajo Nation. A note of warning, this story includes descriptions of violence, which might not be suitable for all listeners. Rebecca Green is standing on a dirt road in front of her house. It's a clear day in this remote stretch of the Navajo Nation on the Utah and Arizona border. She describes this road as a vine, which a number of her family lives off. Today, she's waiting for her aunt, but it's the cars that she doesn't recognize that worry her. This past year, there was a pickup truck that went all the way up to my grandma's house and then just turned around and went back. There was a car that went up here and turned around and went back, and so it could be anybody, you know. So I am scared. I live with that scare of having to look over my shoulder wondering who's going up the road. I have that every day. It's been nearly four years since someone shot and killed their common-law husband. It happened just down the road. Although the FBI charged a suspect, she lives in fear of his family or his associates. So they may take it upon themselves to retaliate and do whatever. In our native belief, we believe that he has spiritual guidance with some medicine man on his end trying to witch us and trying to do harm on us that way, spiritually. Maybe they're coming up here, dropping stuff off on our land and causing us harm that way. Green's birthday is approaching next month. It's a time of year that brings back painful memories. Her husband, Antonio Montuin, had a birthday a couple days after hers, and they were celebrating together on April 14th of 2018. They had just lost a cat and drove looking for it near their home. It was there she saw someone possibly dumping trash. That had been a problem before. So I took it upon myself to go and tell this person that was parked on the turn to leave because he was parked there. Everything in my head was telling me no, I should have listened. As we were going by the turn, Antonio, that was his name, was telling me, should we pull over and tell him to go? Everything in my head was telling me no, but I told him yes. Let's do it. I'm tired of these people on our property. I'm tired of hearing about it. Let's do it. Antonio, or Toby, got out to talk with the man. There was an argument. She says she couldn't hear what was said. She just sat in the car with her son, who was seven at the time. Then she says she saw the gun. His first shot was a warning shot up into the air. Going to the right, probably, I'm not too sure, but that got me scared to where I jumped out of the van. Like, I couldn't believe what just happened and why, what did he say to him, you know? What What did you say? I was waiting for him to come back in. What did he say? Did he say anything? What happened? I just waited for him to get in. It took forever, it seemed like. He got to the door and out of nowhere, as it looks like he's going to get in or turn around or something, he falls. I didn't hear the gunshot. I didn't hear anything of him yelling to him or anything. Toby just falls right in the driver's doorway. 
it took me probably five milliseconds to realize what happened. He was shot in the head. She says the suspect just stood there, holding his gun. She wondered if he would shoot her and her son next. And my son's in the car, and he's starting to scream, Daddy got shot! Daddy got shot! And I said, yes, Riley, stay in the van. Riley's screaming, and I'm like, Riley, remember this number! And I'm yelling what I thought was the license plate number. Federal investigators eventually charged Perry Maryboy for the murder. Green believes it was him who killed her husband. Authorities detained Mary Boy and a trial date was set. Then COVID happened. Pre-trial detention was cut for suspects around the country. Jails were hotbeds for the virus. Mary Boy is also Navajo, and that community was hit especially hard by the pandemic. Staying in jail could have been a death sentence for him, and until a trial, he's presumed innocent. Mary Boy was released from jail in August of 2020. Curtis Yanito is the Mexican Water Chapter House president. So all of a sudden, this Perimer Bush, you know, came up, issue came up. And they said, Perimer Boy needs a new home over here. We got to build him a new house. I said, what? I thought he, was, he had a house in prison somewhere, you know. He goes, no, he's back over here, you know. What is he doing over here, you know? We don't need a person like that in our community, you know. People were scared of him. Yanito says that until he's convicted, Mary Boy has rights to housing from the tribe. Still, some in the community weren't happy about it. And that's how it started. And then people start talking, say, you know, we don't need him here. You know, he needs to go back. He doesn't need these kind of services here and all so forth. Mary Boy lives in White Rock. It's a couple dozen tracked houses and a church. He's not allowed to leave his house without permission, and he wears a GPS tracker. One neighbor, who helped identify Mary Boy to the FBI, isn't comforted. And he, it's been a little bit uncomfortable because I'm just an accuser just down the road now. A couple of blocks he lives from me. Couple of houses. I don't know what he might be thinking, but it has been uneasy. I've been a year and a half now. He doesn't want to give his name. He's had violent run-ins with Mary Boy in the past. He moved back from mom. And he shot in the air. He shot at me. He about shot me, too. He pointed right. He's only about 10 feet away from me. Tried to scare me off. And he was drinking. And very drunk. So he told me to get out of there and all kind of cussing word. So I took off in my Jeep, and he shot some more over my head. Back at Green's home, her Aunt Nell Johnson finally arrives, her truck bumping down the sandy road. You know, we got more cautious of who's going across our yard or who's up on the hill, that kind of thing. Before, you see people hiking out there and say, oh, it's just somebody. Not anymore. Some of us track them. But we never had that. You, you wake up, the reality of what's really, what's out there, it's here. Perry Maryboy's brother is County Commissioner Kenneth Maryboy. Many I talk to in the community think this has given Perry special treatment. But his release isn't up to local politicians. It's a judge that ultimately decides where he will spend his time before trial. That decision is made depending on Perry Maryboy's chance of running and his danger to the community. After a while, Green's aunt figured her family was in this situation because the crime happened in Indian country. So, well, they just kill each other. They're just crazy Indians out there. That kind of attitude, you know. 
That's what I felt like finally when it was continued again. We finally come to that conclusion. It's just because of two people of the same nationality kill each other. It's no big deal. Here's Green again. And even now, like, I feel like I'm not doing enough to have the FBI put them away. I feel like I should be going crazy up there bothering them every day about everything in order to get my way. I don't know. I'm still... I'm, I'm managing every day. I, I break down crying on a daily basis about what I did and how I should have did it or what I could have done or wish I didn't. The jury trial is finally scheduled for May. Until then, Green and her family regularly drive past White Rock where Mary Boy lives. She wonders which house is his, and for the millionth time she thinks about that day nearly four years ago. Justin Higginbottom for Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for scattered rain and snow showers tonight with a low around 25 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 40 miles per hour. One to three inches of snow accumulation is possible. Tuesday expects snow showers with winds gusting to 45 miles per hour. The high is in the mid-30s with a low around 10 degrees. Four to eight inches of snow accumulation is possible. Wednesday should be partly sunny with scattered snow showers and a high around 30 degrees. Wednesday night calls for partly cloudy skies with a low around 15. There is a winter storm warning in effect through Wednesday. This has been the news for Monday, April 11th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.